was a wonderful redemption song to start our Caribbean Digital Literacy Forum. Good evening, everyone. I am Santana Morris, your host and executive director at the Jamaica Intensive Reading Clinic. Warm welcome to our very first Caribbean Digital Literacy Forum. This evening, we have with us two dynamic speakers who will bring to us their years of experiences and knowledge in the field of literacy. We have with us this evening, Mrs. Goldalee Bruce and Dr. Samantha K. Johnston. Let me now use this opportunity to welcome our very own former camp supervisor at our Kingston Division Reading Summer Camp, Ms. Denisha Bailey. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's, it's an absolute pleasure for me to be on this evening and to welcome our first speaker. Now, Mrs. Golda Lee Bruce wants to leave the world better than she found it. She believes in the power of stories to motivate people and transform lives. As a journalist and news anchor for over a decade, Golda told the stories of the people of the Caribbean. She continues this work as a development storyteller at the Inter-American Development Bank, IDB. As a presenter, speaker, and writer, Golda uses her platform to inspire young people in particular. She encourages them to aspire beyond their circumstances, something she was encouraged to do as a student. Golda earned her undergraduate degree in media and communication from the University of the West Indies, Mona and her graduate degree in journalism from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism in New York. She was the recipient of the Arthur N. Taylor Scholarship from Columbia University and an ambassadorial scholarship from the Rotary Foundation. Golda is an, is an alumna of the, the Thomson Reuters Foundation in London, a CNN International Fellow and a Penn Campbell Forum Fellow of the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington, D.C. Golda believes that with faith and perseverance, any dream is possible. This is what she hopes to impart to every person who crosses her path. It is also a lesson that she hopes to teach her son, Issa, and daughter, Nalo. I hope I'm pronouncing those names correctly. Good job. Golda with her family in Maryland, USA. So without any further ado, please welcome our first speaker, Mrs. Goldalee Bruce. Mrs. Bruce, are you on? I'm here, I'm here. That was a wonderful introduction, Denisha. Um, if I had known it was so long, I would have wrote it. So while I um, try to share a presentation that I have created with you, I have the option to share. So I do, only the host can share. Host, can you allow me to share my presentation, please? I want to ask you a question and any of you can just pop up, uh, put up your hand or answer in the chat. When you think about stories, what comes to mind? When you think about stories or storytelling, what comes to mind? Imagination. 
Okay, that's a good one. Comprehension, that's good. Someone's engagement. Engagement, yes. I have to say curiosity. Yes, curiosity is a good one. Oh no, I'm having I'm sharing my screen. What else do we have? Enjoyment, entertainment. Okay. Experience. I, I missed that last one. What was that one? Experience. Experiences. Yes. Okay, so I've lost my presentation. It's not, it's not that I've lost it, but I'm not seeing the option to share it here with you. And so we go forward without that. So I'm going to start with a story. And it's my story. I actually made a presentation. I called it Literacy and Me. When I was very young, my father was killed. He was killed quite tragically. Um, he was, I was a year old. My sister was four years old. And deeply affected us in ways that we didn't understand or couldn't understand until we were adults. And when that happened my family had some questions about you know how it would impact me and my sister i neglected to mention to this point that we were there at the time of his murder and they didn't root that that trauma didn't take root in obvious ways we for the most part uh grew up as happy healthy children but when i was in school i suffered quite a bit because I could not keep a pace with my classmates when it came especially to reading and comprehension. I had done fairly well in the other subjects, but when it came to words, I had quite a challenge with that, reading, comprehension, spelling. And my family found me lagging, I would say, two classes maybe behind um, two age groups, cohorts behind my peers. Now, my grandmother, who was an exceptional woman in many ways, and you're probably going to hear a lot about her in this presentation. Um, you would have seen a picture of her if I could project it, but we go forward. Um, technical difficulties, things happen. My grandmother, who was quite an extraordinary woman, decided that she would take matters into her own hands and that she would take this matter to the only hands that she knew. And so I would sit at the side of her bed, I would open the Bible, and she would have me read the palms, the Psalms. But to me at that point, they were the, the palms. My grandmother was blind, and so she would take me through reading the palms, <laughs> um, because that's how I remember it. She would take me through reading those Psalms from her memory. So she would take me to chapters that she knew and I would fumble through looking at the words, pointing at them and I knew how to read. She basically taught me to read on her own from the Bible without any sight. And this was not the only thing that my grandmother did. She was determined to help me to catch up and she filled the gap in my education with stories. She told me stories about everything, much like many of our grandparents did. In the Caribbean, storytelling is, is second nature. 
tell someone what happened today at the tax office or down the street in the shop or wherever it may be, we tell stories. Is, someone is asking me, is the presentation open on your computer? I'm using my iPad. So that is the challenge right there. But I can share the presentation after. I am good with, with um, not having it right now. And yeah, well, I'll share it after if that's okay. So my grandmother told stories and she told me stories about everything. She told me stories about plants and flowers, about people. And she tried her very best through storytelling to fill the gap in my education. And she did so successfully. I remember one of the stories that she told me was about her cousin who in the early 20th century came to Trinidad from Tobago. My grandmother was from Tobago to visit the ice factory to take ice back to Tobago for 12 hours, over 12 hour journey. Obviously, when he got to Tobago, all that he had was a bucket of water. And that was how she taught me about science, about solids. That was my solids and liquids lesson. And she was funny. You know, she had a way of capturing my attention with the story. And the story never started the same way. And you, you couldn't really tell where she was going. And she was always taking you down different roads. And I was completely engaged. And sooner or later, I realized that I was learning a language, which was the language of stories. And I think very much of myself as having stories as my first language. And what do I mean by that? I mean that it helps me to think about the world in a different way. So some people would come to me and say, well, this is what we need to do about so-and-so problem. And other people would say, Golda, remember when we walked down this road before and you said so, 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 and I am completely captivated. And it's a, it's a method that I use a lot in my work, obviously, as a journalist, and also in my work as a development storyteller, as I've told you before. And so I bring some lessons from what my grandmother did to bear on the work that I believe you are doing, and from your responses so far, doing quite successfully. So what did my grandmother really do? What was she doing when she taught me the language of stories? What was she doing when she told me stories about the environment or about health or about what was, what was she doing even without realizing it? And I would like to say that my grandmother was doing three important One, she was increasing my appetite and for knowledge through telling me those stories. Two, she was teaching me the structure of stories, uh, which is something that I just mentioned a moment ago. And three, if I, if I can remember it, she was helping me to share knowledge with the world. So I'll start with number one, which is the appetite. There are many children who do not encounter reading or they don't encounter books until they get to school right? But stories are something that we encounter very early on in our lives in the Caribbean. Without even knowing it, stories are in, we, we, we sing stories in our music. It's in our art, the way that we communicate with one another. They're everywhere in our lives. And somehow we begin to associate stories with storybooks. 
When really and truly stories exist, a book is just a means of telling a story. But stories exist on their own. I just told you a story about my life and I plan to tell you maybe two or three more before the end of this, this conversation. And it is a way, when I say it increased my appetite, my grandmother was, oh, somebody's saying that they're not hearing anything. Um, are you all hearing me? Are, are you guys hearing me? Yes, great. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. So she was increasing my appetite for stories. She was, she was allowing me to know that there was this device that could be used to communicate. And so by her excitement, by her enthusiasm, you guys have to forgive me because I'm trying to remember everything in the presentation. With her enthusiasm, with her, all of her different literary devices, she was building in me an excitement. I wanted to hear her stories. I wanted her to get to the punchline. I wanted to experience different aspects of the story with her. She was entertaining me. She was educating me. She was taking me on an emotional ride. And at the end of it, she was imparting knowledge to me. So that's what we mean by building an appetite for stories. Um, making children aware, as my grandmother did for me, that these devices exist and making them aware that we can use them for different things. So when granny starts to talk, even until I was an adult and she was 94 years old, when she starts to talk, I was listening. Even if I couldn't put all of the pieces together at the start of the conversation, I was listening. So let me, uh, for example, she was not the type of woman to say, let me teach you a lesson about solids and liquids and gases. She, you know goals, that's what she would call me. She would also call me kids, by the way. You know, girls, I had a who once came from Tobago to buy ice in the And that was all well and good. But the problem is that when he got to the ice factory, he purchased this ice and put it into his bucket. It melted in the 12-hour journey back to Tobago. Now, he had told everyone that he was coming to Trinidad to buy ice. And so they were very excited at that time because there weren't refrigerators back then. People had what they call um, ice boxes, right? There weren't refrigerators. And this ice factory in Trinidad was a, a brand new thing. And so when he got to Tobago and he opened the bucket and everybody saw water, they gasped. And that was the way that my grandmother taught me or even piqued my interest in why ice would turn into a bucket of water. And up until that point, I didn't know about the, that um, scientific process. And so I was interested from the first line of her story because I'd heard stories from her before. And I knew that she was taking me somewhere and I knew that she was taking me somewhere interested. So that's what I mean by creating the appetite for stories. The next thing is this thing we call the story structure. Now, there are many things about, um, there are many different ways in which one can tell a story. And for those of you who are avid readers, you know that different authors have ways of, of, you know, bringing a story to life. I like a very simple method. And this very simple method I read recently in a book called Stories That Stick by an author called Kindra Hall. It's a brand new, uh, I would say the book is less than a year old, but she breaks it down very simply. And she says, story is simply this. There is a normal situation. There is the way that things are. And then there is an intervention or some sort of event that changes the normal. And then step three, you get to a new normal. 
So step one is normal. Two is uh, an intervention or an, or an event. Three is a new normal. So if we think about our COVID situation right now, we existed a certain way before. Children went to school. They were just like yourself. And then along the way, we have a COVID pandemic. All of a sudden, everybody has to go home social distancing. And now we're entering the phase, already in the phase of a new normal, where we have to stay six feet away from each other, where many classes are happening online, and where teachers like yourselves are having to find brand new ways to impart knowledge and to share your audiences. So that to me is a really, really nice, simple story structure. And then once you establish that one, two, three, you can ask questions like, what did I learn from that? What did I take from, what are the lessons from the COVID story? Sometimes we talk about the moral of the story, which is the emotional part of that. What, what, what inside of me should change based on what I've heard in that story? Now, I just want to touch on one thing here that I really, really like, which is that stories are scientifically proven. Narratives, especially those with relatable characters in them, in them are scientifically, scientifically proven to change behavior. Stories have the ability to take us from behaving one way or acting one way, um, take us out of bad habits into a new normal situation in our brain. So it's not just about the moment when we're hearing the story and we're inspired and we feel happy and we're excited, we want to know what happens at the end. It's also about my behavior changing moving forward. So I, I live differently because of the story that I've put and this is something that advertisers have known for a little while. Um, and that's why I don't know how many of you have the opportunity to see any of that super advertising. But over time, you will see that it's much less focused on the product and it's much more focused on the characters in the product. Because once we have a relatable character in there, science has shown that we are proven to feel emotions similar to what we believe that character feels. And that's why all of a sudden there are these, you know, they're advertising gum and it's about a couple chewing gum and it's about a couple falling in love. Or they're advertising bear and it's about a horse and a dog having a friendship. There was actually a Budweiser commercial about that. So you're putting in those identifi identifiable, relatable characters because the people in that, um, the, the people watching those advertisements, the people listening to those stories actually feel what, the, what they believe that those characters feel is their behavior. And it changes their perception of the, the goods that those things are associated with. And so many times when I'm called upon to speak, especially to children, I tell them all of the different stories that my grandmother told me, but I also tell them about things that I've experienced in my life. And I, I exercise a measure of vulnerability with them because I want them to feel like I felt and I want them to take from me important lessons that can change their lives this is like, right so the other thing i wanted to talk about was behavior change what was my grandmother doing when she told me this she was changing my behavior she was motivating and inspiring me with her narratives was i said before it wasn't just about the moment was about much more than the moment. And there was a quote I wanted to share with you. So many things I wanted to do. Uh, there's a quote I wanted to share with you. Um, and it said, 
if you want to lead the world, tell the world stories, basically. If you want to lead people and you want to change their behavior. And one of the things that we saw, where we saw that really, really clearly, is in the campaign of Barack Obama. He wove narratives, stories, people, um, fictional or not, I'm not so certain, into many of his uh, campaign speeches. So he would talk about the farmer from Nebraska or the carpenter from Maine and, and create really relatable characters that his audience latched onto and he was able to inspire behavioral change. And so I want to end my presentation by sharing a story with you about a way in which I saw this storytelling come to life and then I'd like to tie it in a little bit to the work that you do. In 2017, as a journalist at the time, um, in Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm from, obviously. <laughs> and there was Hurricane Irma, and then there was Hurricane Maria, which you know very, very well. And the island of Dominica in particular suffered grave damage um, due to Hurricane Maria. And the prime minister at the time, who was still the prime minister, Dr. Keith Rowley, he, his administration um, took a very sort of uh, caring stance when it came to Hurricane Maria and the people of Dominica. And part of the, what he outlined to help the people of Dominica on behalf of all of us Trinidadians was that Dominican students could come to Trinidad and finish their university schooling, their secondary school schooling, finish out the school year in Trinidad or, or stay as long as it took in order for them to, you know, not fall back because of the hurricane. And of course, this uh, outpouring of support for Dominica on the part of the prime minister was met with some opposition and some reservation on the part of uh, citizens. Um, the main criticism at that point in time was, we have many social ills in Trinidad that are not being treated adequately. Shouldn't we see after what's happening at home before we head off to the Caribbean region to be the savior for anyone? And his communications team um, kind of battled that narrative for a, a couple of Well, you know, it was, no, we have to do this. This is the right thing to do morally and, and so on and so forth. And then probably about three weeks after they made that initial announcement, when much of the um, criticism of it died down, uh, Dr. Rowley was on a tour of somewhere, I can't remember. And I was working at the time as a reporter. And he began his presentation to reporters. I, I believe that he must have been, felt a little bit worn all of the criticism. Um, that, that's just my point of my opinion of it. I could be very wrong. But he said the following. He said in 1960, I believe it was 61, or in the early 1960s, Hurricane Flora hit to He was a child at the time, and he said he remembered going to school that day, and there was bright sunshine in the sky. By the time he returned from school, the sky was dark and overcast. Of course, in the early 60s, the weather prediction um, tools were not as sophisticated as they are today. So for many people, they could, not, they could not know that Flora was coming 
nor could they know how intense Flora would be. And so they went into this darkness and Hurricane Flora hit. And just maybe 24 hours after, Tobago had a completely different face. Uh, much of the infrastructure that had been put in within recent years was downed. There was no electricity. And people were really worried about their survival at that time. The young prime minister was in Tobago experiencing this firsthand as a child. And he said that in the days after Hurricane Flora hit Tobago, they noticed that many vessels were coming into the port in Scarborough, many, many vessels. And when it was revealed, the vessels were coming in from the island of St. Vincent, full of roasted breadfruit. And he said, people of St. Vincent didn't have much to send. They, send what they, they sent what they had, roasted breadfruit, to help the people of Tobago in the early 60s. And he said, now we must give what we have. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, had that story come just at the start of the announcement, it would have done so much good to inspire us to be more caring and to be more helpful as a people. Either way, it did have an impact. But just listening to it, I'm sure you felt a certain measure of emotion um, hearing it third hand from me. And so is the power of stories. And I think that now, in a time when you have much less time to spend with your students, if any at all, uh, for those lucky enough to have the resources to be online or to, to attend classes in any way, you have less time. And I know that you still have a lot to impart and a lot to share with your students. And I invite you to use simple storytelling methods. Normal, new norm, normal, event, new normal. I invite you to try this if you aren't already to get your students excited, to share knowledge with them, to change their behavior, to entertain them, to build relationships with them and to emotions with them. So that's my presentation for you. I am happy to answer any questions that you may have. Um, I'm a storyteller slash journalist, uh, not a teacher and can learn a lot from you as well. So do you think storytelling is for older students? Um, I think storytelling is effective for any person, any adult, any child. Um, the problem is that we've, been, we've thought about storytelling uh, as related to storybooks, as related to children um, and something that happens in early education. But really and truly, as I, as I cited the example with President Obama, storytelling happens everywhere in every realm. And I believe that it's the most influential people who know how to use it to their advantage. I, my job portfolio says development storytelling. I still have people asking me if I sit under, the tree, under a tree with storybooks reading to children. I think it's effective for older students as well, definitely. In fact, it is not just um, effective for older um, students, but even young adults, you'll be surprised. Um, our son who is now 23, up to when he was 19, going into 20, he was still requesting that we tell him a story before he goes to bed. Well, there you go. And I was, I was very same with my grandmother. I would, you know, sit at her feet and listen to stories all, all day long. But, you know, even in 
in the professional situation when you have to make presentations. Um, I think starting with a story is, is very, very useful to get people engaged and to, you know, open up and be vulnerable with your audience. I would say any age for sure. Alright, there's a question that says the storytelling effective in other classes like mathematics or science. Definitely. Um, I don't know if you, you missed the part where I talked about how my grandmother taught me the lesson on solids and liquids. But um, definitely storytelling, I think, is, you know, one of the most useful tools to impart any type of knowledge. And, and unfortunately, we've thought about it as an English language slash English literature tool, um, even sometimes in social studies. But if you can find a way to, as a matter of fact, many math problems, we say, you know, John had five oranges. Mm -hmm. If John <laughs> gives away yeah. two oranges, that is a type of storytelling as well. So definitely. Mm -hmm. Annette in Brooklyn says her son is a math teacher. So he probably does a lot of this as well. Okay, Ms. Morris, I'm here. Back over to you. Okay, thank you very much. I am having a little difficulties. I'm trying to solve it so that I can come back on to show my video. Um, this was an excellent presentation. We are truly grateful for your insight and also your story, Mrs. Bruce. We could not have chosen a better person. And I am sure that our listeners, you know, are all grateful as soon as I receive a copy of your presentation, I will circulate it to the persons who are a part of this meeting. So once again, thank you very much for your excellent presentation. We do appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. So now in the meet, we're going to invite Chanel Shakespeare to introduce our second speaker so that we can capitalize on the time that we have. Um, the second speaker this evening we'll be talking about a literacy toolkit for parents. Chanel Shakespeare. Definitely. Thank you so much, Santana. Good evening, everyone. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing our second speaker for this evening's program, Dr. Samantha K. Johnson. She is a teaching academic on, in undergraduate psychology at Curtin University. She also works in industry as a research scientist at Singleview International, which is an education technology company based in Australia, Sri Lanka, and the United States. Now at Singleview, Samantha leads the product evolution team in developing Virtuoso, which is an online learning engagement platform to advance the learning outcomes of students. Samantha has also been actively involved in human development initiatives in education. In 2014, she coordinated the Give Back to Humanity project, which assisted three girls to attend university in Northern Nigeria. She is also the founder of Project Capability. And since 2016, this project has provided a scholarship to students with dyslexia and wardens of the state in Jamaica. She's formerly educated in Jamaica, England, and Australia. And her main research focus is in the area of reading development. Currently, her research seeks to identify and provide more dynamic ways of identifying which children will likely have reading difficulties. 
to offer this reading assessment tool at scale and hopefully to reduce the workload of teachers, it is intended for this tool to be underpinned by automatic speech recognition. Dr. Johnson is currently an executive member of the Education Reference Group of the United Nations, which provides the opportunity to better prepare primary and secondary schools to become productive global citizens. Without any further ado, I welcome Dr. Samantha K. Johnson to the, to the podium. I crave your undivided attention. Dr. Johnson, it is over to you. Welcome and looking forward to the rest of our presentation. Thanks, Janiel. Um, like Golda, if I had known that the reading <laughs> it would have been so long, I would have um, reduced the word count. But thank you so much. And I'm very, very You're excited welcome. and happy to share with you. Um, I'm going to see if my um, screen can be shared. And again, the host disabled attendee screen sharing. We want you to think about, imagine living in a world where you're unable to read a single, word at, a single word at all. Imagine not being able to read the label of a prescription bottle. Imagine not being able to complete a form or even possibly reading the sign while you're driving. Um, just think about what life would be like for you in this particular instance. And perhaps you have a reading difficulty, you're joining, you have a reading difficulty. Um, what is life currently like, like for you currently? And um, according to the latest research by the United Nations, this is really the, you know, the reality of about 770 million um, persons across the world. And what the research actually shows us is that persons who have a high illiteracy rate or who experience illiteracy, they are more likely to experience poverty. So this is something that is very near and dear to my heart, especially when we think about reading difficulties. I you know, grew up and my brother had dyslexia and for him, life was very difficult and schooling was very difficult. So my background is primarily in the research sector. And a lot of times when I'm conducting research with parents, what they tend to say to me is that they have this shared understanding that Education is important and education is able to change the lives of um, their, their children. But one of the, the concerns that they tend to, they would say to me sometimes is that um, we do understand that education is important, but we don't really have the skills and the techniques to really improve um, literacy and reading in particular of their students or their children. And for me, when I hear this and I come across and you know, engage with, with parents and teachers, this really, um, you know, this really concerns me because what the research says, the research warns us is, is, that, is that if we don't actively involve parents in this effort to improve the literacy outcomes of their children, then we can't expect intergenerational changes such as literacy to improve. So for this reason, I'm quite excited to share with you. Um, in Australia, it's morning time now, so it's seven o'clock in the morning. So I'm quite happy to share with you um, some of the research um, findings that I've come across, um, specifically in three fundamental areas of literacy. The first one is talking, read, the second is reading, and then the third is writing. I'm gonna share some research findings with you but also some more practical strategies that you can use, um, specifically parents while you're at home, um, in order to improve the literacy outcomes. So I'm going to try sharing again, if that's funny, and writing. So are you able to see my computer? Yes. All right, perfect. So I'll just skip through. 
Um, so really, the toolkit that I'm sharing, thanks, uh, Ms. Morris, the, re the, the toolkit that I'm sharing today is really looking at providing or equipping uh, parents and educators with um, some practical strategies, but also a, a bit, I'm a researcher, so I'm going to give you a bit of the research background. And really, I want you to think about it in the context of a transformational toolkit. This is a literacy toolkit, but really through literacy, you can start to transform the lives of your students and your children. Um, I want to just acknowledge um, that I work within a broader research team, um, and we really look at parental engagement and involvement and how we can improve this. But um, I work alongside, my background is primarily in education and psychology, but I also work alongside and lead this team with Ms. Mrs. Michelle Corby, and she's also a research scientist um, at Singleview. And Michelle, she has over 10 years of experience in um, the classroom setting, so she has experience in Australia and New Zealand, in India and the United Kingdom. So whereas I come with a research experience and propose, you know, I ask Michelle, will, will this work in a particular setting? Uh, Michelle is able to really come on board and let me know to what extent this will be effective based on her experience. Now, a lot of times when I talk to parents, um, they're quite surprised when I explain to them that one of the most powerful things that they can do even before they start reading and writing is to talk to their children. And this really links back to what Golda was um, mentioning about the role of stories. You're really talking and engaging with them. And what the research shows us is that once you talk to children, what will happen in their brains is that this um, improves the neural pathways um, or the language or their language abilities. So why is talk really important? Now talk is important because it, a landmark study back in around 1995, also known as a 30 million word gap study, what that study actually found was that children who are from higher income families were hearing, by the age of three, they were hearing 30 million more words compared with children from lower income families. So essentially what the researchers said was that um, the, the more money you have, the more likely you will talk to your children and the better they will be in terms of reading and reading comprehension reading accuracy. Now, it's not surprising because the research has actually found that hearing more words is related to higher rates of literacy. So it was not surprising to me when the researchers showed that the kids from higher income households, because they were hearing more words, when they gave them tests of reading comprehension or reading accuracy, we found that these kids, they actually perform much better um, compared to kids from lower income households. But something didn't really sit well with me with this particular research finding. And it was interesting because over the years, what the research has done, they've delved into this topic and they really have started to ask the question, is this 30 million word gap, is it really real? Now, a couple years ago, I met Rachel, um, Dr. Rachel Romeo, and Rachel too had a similar interest, sim um, similar to um, the question that I just posed in terms of, is this word gap really real? So Rachel, what she does is she studies the brain of um, children, and I'll show you two brains that she um, 
she scanned. Um, so this is, uh, the, these are the brains of children, um, probably age four um, to six years old. And the, the areas that are highlighted here, these are areas in the brain that are responsible for um, our language ability. So I'm talking to you now and you, you'll talk to me. And these, these are the areas in the brain that will become illuminated. Now, what, what this diagram here shows is that the one on the left that has blue, it's not so connected. Whereas the one on the right, this is highly connected. And that means the one on the right will actually, that child has better reading capabilities because those in the brain are very important. Now, what Rachel found was that kids, whether or not they came from lower, lower income households or higher income households, there was a, there's a particular way to talk to children. Um, it doesn't matter the money that you have. There's a particular way to talk to children to make sure that their literacy outcomes are actually improved. And she calls that the conversational turn. So you can see that the, the, the brain here on the right that has 210 convers conversational turns, um, this, this, this child actually is better in reading compared to the one who has only 95 conversational turns. So I'll explain what a conversational turn is because this was really an important study and it really gave parents from lower income households more hope that, you know, regardless of my current they are able to then contribute to the well-being of their children. So what, what I will do is before I tell you how to practice conversational turns, it's also called turn taking or serve and return, I'll tell you what it is not. So oftentimes we talk to our children or our students and we say, what are you doing? Where are you going? Who are you talking to? This is not a conversational turn. In other cases, we might say, go and clean your room, go and eat or eat your dinner. This too is not a conversational turn. This is a, this in fact is a command. Mm -hmm. Now a conversational turn, as you'll see, um, it's called serve and return as well. And the tennis rackets here, it represents what a conversational turn is, which is a back and forth, meaningful conversation that you have with your children or students. Now, one way that you can practice this is um, at the breakfast and dinner table, or probably anytime. So um, you can ask, what if, what if you didn't have any money today? What would you do? Or at, the din at dinner time, you can say, how would you probably solve this particular problem? Um, for younger students, you can say, how, you know, what made you feel mad, glad, or sad today? Or did you do anything good for someone today? And how did you do that? So these questions really invite a conversation instead of the previous one that I, I've just shared. And in this way, you can have that back and forth interaction with your child and your student. And what the research actually shows is that when you're having a conversational turn, you propose a question and you wait for at least five seconds to make sure that this, your child or your student is able to provide you with a response. And then, yeah, again, I want to confirm that what the research has actually found was that when students of household, um, when students um, practice and engage in these conversational turns, they're more likely to have better literacy and better reading outcomes. Now, I have a lot of friends in the Caribbean, a lot of parents in the Caribbean as well, and one of the questions that they tend to ask me is, does turn-taking or does conversational do they work when English um, is a second, is my second language? And this is something I think we need to be 
mindful of because in the Caribbean we're qu we're quite diverse. We have um, different languages, and in fact, the research has shown that over the last couple of years there has been an increase in migration from. Um, non-English speaking countries to English speaking countries in the Caribbean and parents are quite concerned where you know their their children go to school um, and they're exposed to English but when they're back in the home um, the parents may not have a may not be proficient in English and so they're concerned can I just speak in my home language so the research shows definitely that talking in your home language um, conversational turn actually um, translates across language. So once you talk in your home language, that's enough to facilitate that conversational turn. But one of the things that I want to highlight is that when you're talking in your home language, if it's not English, make sure that you talk in complete sentences so that your child can see the that, that language has a particular structure. Now, another way you can practice conversational turns is through the use of picture books, um, partic in particular using the What Next activity. Now, picture books, it's quite self-explanatory. It's books that have pictures. And um, what do, you know, coming from a psychology background, we have a theoretical perspective, perspective called the dual coding theory, which means that when you, when you provide pictures and verbal information or pictures, um, when you provide information from multiple modalities, it actually strengthens the, the, the memory connections in the brain. So these are just some resources that you can access. The what next activity is essentially you're asking, you're bringing up a picture on the screen and you're asking the child to describe the picture and asking them what next. And then they respond and you ask them what next. And again, you can see that that really facilitates that those turns and prolongs the conversation. So the International Children's Digi Digital Library is a free library. It provides books for children for um, all different um, age groups and also in different languages, English, Danish, um, Spanish, Afrikaans. Now, I understand that some persons may not have that strong connectivity to the internet. So you can practice this what next activity using common household items. Um, and here I have pictured, you have the cereal boxes. So you have, um, you're at a breakfast table and you can essentially, using Dora as an example, you can ask your, your, your child, what do you think Dora is gonna do? And then what next? And again, you see that it prolongs the conversation. One of the things that I wanna highlight is that growing up in the Caribbean, I'm not sure, in Jamaica specifically, I'm not sure if this happens in the Caribbean, but a lot of times I would visit friends' homes and, you know, their parents would say, Get, it doesn't matter what, what um, cereal was out, it could be the cinnamon toast or the Reese's puff or honeymoon, most Caribbean parents would say, just go and get the cornflakes. So um, I am going to highlight to you the correct word, um, the name of the cereal, because what this does is that it highlights to the child that these cereal has different names, and in so doing, it, it increases their vocabulary. Um, another resource I want to share is Kiddle. So Kiddle can be accessed at kiddle.com, and essentially Kiddle is like Google, but for children. And you can download all sorts of information for children. In particular, I want to highlight the images because we're looking at um, creating stories, similar to what Golda was mentioning. Um, so once you go onto Kiddle, it's child-friendly, it's safe, and it's age-appropriate. And um, this is just a picture of a football match. So another activity that you can, um, you can implement is called the freeze and speak activity. Then so the freeze and speak activity is essentially straightforward. Once you once another person is speaking, you freeze, 
and you allow the other person to speak. And this allows you to practice turn-taking, but also improve your literacy and communication skills. And what the research actually shows us is that um, in this freeze and speak activity, it allows persons to empathize with others, to listen to the other speaker while waiting on their turn. Now, while your kids or your students are speaking, one of the last things I want to highlight from this talking section is this app that was just released. You can access it on your phone or even through the internet. And it's about tracking the conversation and your speech development of your child. It's called Kids Kid Talk and it's a language scrapbook. So similar to, um, you know, you have a you may have a, a picture, a tangible photo album containing pictures of your, your children, or you may have an electronic album. This is an album of your, you know, an audio speech development. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because a lot of times we're at home and this app was released, especially during the COVID period. And the researchers, um, they actually found that kids, their speech development may be progressing differently during this time because they're not interacting with um, children of their own age, of their own age. And so what they wanted to do is to collect, um, you know, collect a, a comp or compile rather um, different um, speech tracking across the world. And so once you sign up, they actually provide you with feedback to know whether or not your child is speaking at a level um, appropriate based on their age. And this is also useful, especially um, parents, if you can record your child maybe doing turn-taking activities, they can pretty much speak about anything, um, maybe their favorite toys, what are they doing? The whole idea is to record their voice and you can probably provide this later, maybe to their teacher or to, the, to a literacy specialist to really analyze your child on your age to see whether or not they, their speech aligns with um, their developmental milestone. And it's free of charge. Um, and it's, I, I think it's a really handy tool. And this is also useful for speech pathologists. And essentially, um, you can allow kids to just go back and listen to their own voices and their own speech. And what the research shows us is that understanding of speech sound is important for the second aspect of what I'm going to talk about, and that's reading. And most of my research is focused in this area of reading. And the research says a child's understanding of their ability to understand speech sounds is important for later reading. So you find that kids who can understand speech sounds, they're usually better in reading accuracy, reading fluency, and reading comprehension. Now, I don't know if parents or teachers, if you know about, currently we have a reading wars that's currently going on. And, what, and I'll explain to you what the, this reading war is. And over the years, we've found that educators have really debated how best, you know, what's the best way that we can actually teach our children how to read. So over the years, they've been divided. Um, should we use a whole word approach or should we use a phonics-based approach? The whole word approach is basically memorizing words. The phonics approach is teaching children how to sound out words. Now, what I'm here to tell you is that it's not one or the other. Both of them are quite useful in certain contexts, and I'll show you how you can implement that at home. Now, I also want to highlight to you here is that a lot of parents have, you know, come to me and they've said, I've used primarily this whole word approach. I've just shown my child this word me at the dog. And um, I haven't taught them to sound out the words. 
that just asked them to memorize the word. So I had, you know, for example, a parent, she came to me and she said, I taught, I, I taught my, my daughter to read um, about a hundred words to memorize them, but she can only read a hundred words. And that's not surprising to me. So what I'm going to advocate here is that you start at least with a phonics-based approach. And the reason why is that research shows us that starting with a phonics approach, teach, teaching your child to sound out the words, it's quite important because um, this researcher, his name is um, Kolos, Kozlov, sorry, and he says the phonics-based approach is important because if a child memorizes, if you teach them to memorize only 500 words, he or she can only read 500 words. But if a child learns the sound of 10 letters, this is sounding out, the child will be able to read 353 word, three sound words, 4,324 sound words, and 21,000 655 sound words. So essentially what this is saying is that once you provide kids with the ability to sound out words, you're equipping them with the necessary tools to read words that they would have never seen before. And now that we've established that the phonics-based approach is important, there are two key things that I want to highlight here to make sure that you are really um, fostering or implement, implementing the correct techniques when you're at home. So what the research says, when you're implementing a phonics-based approach, there are two things that you need to focus on. The first one is phonemic awareness, and the second one is synthetic phonics. And I'll explain both of them and provide you with concrete examples of how you can go about doing that. So phonemic awareness is basically just understanding the, the, the sounds in a word. So I'm saying cat. So the child needs to be aware that cat has three sounds, k, a, t. And so we do this orally. So you don't introduce any books or anything at this point in time. And, you know, oftentimes we think that kids just naturally understand the word, the sounds in our words. This reading is not a natural process and we need to make it as explicit as possible. So there are six techniques that I'm going to show you as parents you can try at home. So this is, I want to emphasize, you're not going to provide them with any letters or any books. You're going to do this orally. So the first one is called blending. So in blending, you're going to say to your child, um, educators, you can also use this. You can say to your student, you say a compound word. You say the words in two parts with a pause in between. So an, an, an example would be saying the word sun, shine. Then you ask the child to guess what word it is. Naturally, you'd expect them to say sunshine. A second one is called segmenting, which is is can you break words into two smaller words? So for example, you ask your child, what's the word rainbow in smaller words? So they'd break it down, rain and bow. Um, you'd ask them to also delete. So for example, you say the word sunshine without saying sun. The child should respond saying shine. Another important element is being able to recognize rhyme and generating rhyme. So for example, you can say, um, do cat and hat rhyme? The child would say yes. Do dog and cat rhyme? No, that doesn't rhyme. And you can also ask them to generate rhymes. Can you tell me what, what word rhymes with car? And they would say star or bar. Um, and why we all we always find you know nursery you know nursery rhymes and what the research shows us is that a child or a student who is able to recognize rhymes they are actually better in reading and reading accuracy because rhyming gives you a gateway to understand the sound structure of words and then the last one is detection so you can say tell me if you can hear a t say the sound not the actual letter in this word so cat yes tip 
Yes, lip, nose. So if all, you know, all these different six elements um, really help you to gauge where your child is at and what areas they need assistance with. So if you do these sorts of activities, um, parents, you can actually help um, to educate the teachers a little bit more because some children may be good in blending, but may, they may be having difficulties in segmenting or generating or recognizing rhyme. So and we find that a lot of persons who have a reading difficulty or even dyslexia, they have difficulties in these areas. So if you can, um, really highlight or do these activities at, at home and maybe even record with that um, sound recording or that speech app that I just introduced earlier, this can be really powerful in, in, in really strengthening the home and school connection. Now, I understand that parents may have difficulty in generating the words, so I can share my presentation after and I think this presentation is available um, after this um, form has ended, you can just visit English study here and it actually provides you with 1000 examples of words that you can use to say to your children. So now that we've established phonemic awareness, which is understanding word sounds, how do you go about teaching the second part, which is synthetic phonics? So synthetic phonics is basically you're introducing the letters now. So you're explicitly showing your child that these sounds that they're hearing, they can actually be mapped onto letters that are in reading books. So synthetic phonics is basically just showing the relationship between sounds, which we call phonemes, and letters, which we call graphemes. So first you say to, using cat as an example here, you explicitly um, say to your child, k, a, t. And then the second part is blending, which is then saying the entire word, cat. So same thing with mat, car, car and jar. So by practicing um, phonemic awareness and synthetic phonics, you can be sure and you can be in a better position to make sure that your child becomes more fluent in reading, more accurate, and also really achieve the end goal of reading, which is reading comprehension. And there are, you know, many resources out there to really um, improve phonics um, among your, your students or your child. And one of the resources that I want to highlight is the Spellphabet phonics resource, which is really good and has really come in handy um, to myself in the past as well. Now, remember I said there are two different approaches to teaching um, your children how to read. Um, the first one is a phonics base, which you just went through, but the whole word is really important. And there are some words in the English language that you have to memorize. They can't be sounded out. And these are called what we call irregular words and words that are not pronounced the same way that they're actually spelled. So as an example here in the word cloud that I have on the screen, the, 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 the word genre, G-E-N-R-E, -E, you can't pronounce, it doesn't, um, it's not pronounced the way how it's spelled. If you pronounce it the way how it's spelled, you would probably say genre or something to that effect. These words, um, irregular words, they take up about 20% of the English alphabet, so not a lot. But these are the words that you have to memorize. And so um, I can also provide you the link of some of these irregular words, but I just want to highlight it that not all words that, that not all words can actually be sounded out.
Now, where can children practice these reading skills? Now, you've taught them the irregular words, you've taught them how to sound out words. These are some free resources that you can use. Um, I quite like the freechildrenstories.com. It's always free to read, no sign up and no downloads. And it offers um, stories for kids of all ages, um, high school, primary school, and also stories in different languages. And one of the things that you can implement at home is this whole idea of the book of the day. And book of the day is essential where kids um, jump on and they choose their own books to read and what the research shows is that once you give children ownership in a guided way they're more likely to be engaged and interested because they've made a goal and they've, they've collaborated on what book they're choosing um, and this really facilitates what we call independent reading because we want children to comp comprehend but we want them to become independent readers to be able to read for themselves but I want to also highlight that even though independent reading is important it's important to also um, practice shared reading so shared reading takes the form of reading aloud and these are just two programs that I led um, a while back uh, which really show the importance of shared reading so the one on the right uh, sorry the one on the left is um, the read to lead program which I organized at the Jamaican Christian Boys Home a while back and also when I was living in England we had a reading program with the Liverpool, Liverpool City Council and what we found is that when we read aloud to students and through shared reading, it shows students what reading actually should be like, where you should pause, where they can express themselves. And when they go back to their own independent reading lives, they read it in that manner, actually knowing that this is where, this is how a story should come alive based on how the adult has explained it to them and it only takes 15 minutes per day 15 to 20 minutes per day um, this is what the research was in terms of collaborating with your child with your student um, on reading but i do understand that some parents are busy many parents are working from home but reading aloud must go on and so i also want to recommend this resource to you which is storyline on storyline online which is where we have prominent actors actually reading books to your students or your child. And so this is free of cost. So when you don't have, you know, necessarily you have other obligations, maybe you're not comfortable reading the story in an expressive manner. So I just want to recommend this resource to you so that when you can't read aloud to your child, you can just log on to storyline on storylineonline.net and um, have your child engage um, with somebody reading to them. No, really, when you do that, it's providing you with the tools and providing your children with the necessary, necessary tools to move from reading to learn, um, sorry, from learning to read to, to reading to learn, essentially. Now, the last thing I'm going to speak about today is this whole idea of writing. Now, we've you know, you've talked to your students, talked to your children, you've taught them how to read, but another important element in, um, in literacy is the ability to write effectively. Now, a lot of times, um, the, you know, the first thing that parents oftentimes come to me with and they explain is that when, whenever they give their children a, an assignment, they have a problem with uh, summarizing. So there are two ways you can actually write. You can write for pleasure. Um, you're writing for school, you're writing for enjoyment. But when you're coming to summarize, um, there's a technique that you can use as parents to help your child to summarize. So it's called a summarization frame. And the technique is called a somebody wanted but so technique. So it's essentially, when you look at different stories and you ask a child to summarize, you can use this, this technique for pretty much any story. And I'll use an example. Um, the big bad wolf wanted 
pigs for dinner, but they hid in the brick house, so he went hungry. So if you just say to your child, what did that person want? But then what happened? So then what happened? Um, this helps them to have sort of a structure in their summary. Um, and another issue that kids you know, usually have is they usually have spelling difficulties. And it's important to help them to, to, to spell, but we want them to eventually become independent spellers. So you try to scaffold them or help them by using different techniques. So you can say to them, say it slowly and write the sounds that you hear, or maybe tap out the syllables and spell each tap and I'll help you to decipher whether or not the spelling is correct. And then the last one is use what you know after sounding it out. Think about other words you may know, how to spell the sounds. Um, so for example, if a child knows how to spell book and the child has come across the word look or cook, they can just think about the fact that they know, they know how to spell book um, and can use that um, as an example. And this is what we call spelling by analogy. I also encourage you to write, encourage your children to write and your students to write for purpose. So writing for purpose can take the, you know, the you know, writing, this was a, on the left here, this was an example of a, a child who wrote um, to the doctors during COVID. A second example here is a child who wrote to the newspaper. And it, it, by, by engaging in these social means or writing to the newspapers, it really gives children the ability to show how, you know, they're empowered and that their words actually can make a difference. Um, I also want to highlight that um, kids who are interested in science, there's a journal out there where kids can actually do their own scientific experiments and submit their work to, to receive editing from um, maybe other researchers, other child researchers. And what the research shows is that once a child is able to engage with other peers, peer-to-peer peer -peer feedback is one of the greatest learning mechanisms. So this kidsfrontier.com is a good resource for kids to submit their resource and um, writing and get feedback. And a last question that parents usually ask me is writing or typing, which one is better? Well, the research is really divided on this. Um, um, writing usually is slower and it commits information better to memory, but um, there is not an answer to this as yet. And I don't think there will ever be an answer because it's just all about moderation. But what I wanna highlight is that what the research has found is that regardless of whether you're writing or typing, ensure that children carry the main ideas and concepts in their notes that will, they will need later on. So it's the quality of the quality of the writing rather than the actual instrument that you're using. And we can't really get away from the digital age that we, use, that we live in. And this is a final question that parents tend to ask me. How can I then facilitate quality literacy instructions when using technology? And this was an article that I wrote a couple months ago. And one of the things that I found was that we focus too much on screen time. Screens are not bad. There's no evidence to show that engaging with screens is actually bad. Um, there are two things that, the, that they don't usually say is the screen quality and the screen collaboration. So whenever your child is engaging with the computers or the iPad, Make sure that it's age appropriate, it's educational, and it's interactive. And ensure that you have a family media plan, plan and you also view the screens with your children. In this way, we can know that they are having quality inter interactions. So 
these are just some of the key things I want to highlight and really the take home message is that literacy is all about quality over quantity and it emerges from quality talking, quality reading instruction, quality writing opportunities and quality interactions with technology. So if you don't rem remember anything from the presentation today, this is the take home or, or the key message. And of course, um, you can uh, on social media or you can send me an email um, if you have any future questions or concerns and I'll, I'll open the the chat no I couldn't unfortunately I'm not able to see the chat while I'm, I'm presenting full screen so I will um, open the the chat now to answer any questions or concerns Wow. All right. Thank you so very much, Dr. Johnson. Thanks so much for the presentation. Based on the chat, <laughs> a lot of persons have been saying that it has been very informative. We want to thank you so much. We feel like we've been armed, you know, we have an arsenal of tools that we can use as parents and as teachers to now go out and ensure that our sons and daughters or the persons that we interact with at school are better readers and they're able to contribute to society because that I know that's one of your aims to produce people who are global citizens so thanks again for your presentation and ladies and gentlemen the floor is now open for any questions that you might have for Dr. Johnson. Uh, Doc I agree that it was very very informative. Um, I felt as if I was sitting in a lecture theater. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the area of concern for me has to do with the conversational turn. Um, it's interesting to note also that you're from Jamaica or you have had um, some Jamaican influence. So you would know within the Jamaican culture, there is a, the thinking that when you are around the dining table, that you are expected to keep quiet. Um, what is your recommendation to get past that kind of traditional um, position taken by many parents? Well, that's a good question, and I think one of the things that we need to think about um, going and it's not a, it's not only a, a Jamaican um, concern because even here in Australia, I have. I've, I've come across similar sentiments. So I think it really has to do with changing the culture to begin with, because that's a lived experience of a child. So these are this is a this is a reason why I'm quite excited to do these sorts of presentations because in this way I get to really expose the research a little bit more, and you know to highlight to parents that yes. Um, you know, going back to the Jamaican example, children should be seen and not heard. Mm -hmm. um, this is not something that we should really practice because if children don't really get that opportunity to speak and to engage in those turn-taking or serve-and-return um, activities or interactions, then likely to have, you know, going back to that brain example that I showed, they're less likely to form those language connections in the brain. So I just want to encourage parents, um, all we can do is 
different because um, there are different ways, different parenting styles. But I just want to take this opportunity just to encourage parents, just to engage your child a little bit more. Um, I understand sometimes it may be hard. Sometimes you just want to sit down and be quiet. But this doesn't really do much in the way of... Um, helping your child or your student because going back to even what Golda said in her presentation even before we introduced books or writing mm -hmm. talking and telling stories really form the cornerstone of really setting children up to become better readers better readers um, in terms of more accurate readers fluent readers and readers that will go on to eventually have better comprehension skills And, and one thing, oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. I was saying one thing too that I recognize sometimes parents are unaware of the power that they have. Sometimes, once you reshape their thinking and you let them know that something as simple as the, the conversation return that you mentioned, a simple conversation where we get our children to talk back to us, works wonders for them when they go to school and they're able to use words, new words, are they able to? to read better. So sometimes just letting them know that something as simple as talking to your children is very powerful makes them feel better. And you know what? I can give this a try. I can help my son or daughter to read, man. It's not that hard. And as they gain that confidence, then they're willing to utilize other tools that are introduced to them. Yes, I agree with you, um, um, Shanil, and especially going back to even the, the research on psychology, um, what you just described here is what we call, we call it observational learning, and this goes back to a, a theorist, He's, his name is Albert Bandura, and he says, children, and we all know this, and it's common knowledge, that's why I love psychology, because it's all about human behavior, it, there's just a theoretical perspective behind it, and once your child observes you, you know, engaging in those turns, they feel as though I too can do it, and so it sets, it, it sets up that culture in your, in your, in your household to, to continue engaging in that format. I'm not sure if we're able to see the questions. One person is asking, what is the simplest way to introduce a literacy program at a school when everyone is strapped for time? You have so many other subjects to teach. <laughs> yeah, and this is, um, this is one of the things that Michelle, so Michelle, who I lead, this is one of the things that we're trying to, to really address because it, it, time, whether it's a Jamaican system, England, the English system, or Australian teachers are so teachers are always strapped for time and this is where I think technology comes into play and the powerful role of technology because once we partner with technology it can really help us to um, reduce those administrative elements so the person who's asked that question um, I'm not sure who is that but if you email send me an email I can provide you with some um, some more specific strategies and some of the technology I have the resources listed on my laptop and I can provide you with some of the um, more specific ways that technology can be used to embed so this is where I see um, the power of technology coming in to really automate some of those administrative tasks that really take up the time because you know in some of the being an education tech company some of the demonstrations that we often do this is just one of the quick this is the most popular questions that that teachers ask how is it that we can um, reduce or or 
you know, time and make the time more efficient. And I think by, by using a, a technological platform that really caters to the, the specific needs that you're looking for, this is one way that you can reduce um, the time frame. Awesome. All right, another question. Somebody is saying that they, they tried some of the methods that you talked about, but they were wondering if they were on the right track because their, their child is difficult to teach. So how do we reframe that? Because I know a lot of persons have that challenge where they say, you know, I'm hard to learn or she hard to learn. How do you help the parents to reframe that where they can use strategies to help them get better? So one of the things that I, I like to highlight when it comes on to reading is that we also, one of the approaches that I like to take is really understanding that Yes, we're teaching our students and our, our children how to read, but we also have to think about the fact that we, are, we need to address the whole child. And reading is just one part of it. And so, and this is why I always like to take an individualized approach. So no, you know, no one approach will work for two, for the two students or multiple students. In some cases, yes. But a lot of times when we're, we have to read the situation, essentially, um, a lot, what most persons don't know is that a lot of times when you read, there are so many cognitive processes or brain processes that really contribute to reading. So it can be um, memory problems or attention problems. One of the biggest things is attention. And so how do you get your child to engage a little bit more um, while they're doing it? Um, because in order for you to teach somebody how to read, they, they must be able to engage first and foremost. And one way of, and so my research, I also do a lot of research in attention. And to this day, honestly, we don't know what attention is and we don't know how efficient it is um, as yet. So one of the tools I'm developing is really how can we measure good attention skills but in the meantime what you can do is to practice what we call brain breaks so a lot of times um you know kids are there and they're sitting it's so hard for them to sit down and pay attention and you can implement brain breaks just comes in the form so you can use riddles for example and what what the research shows is that while you're engaging in a main task the main task here would be reading or maybe if they're, they're doing homework mathematics science anything um, make sure that every 15 minutes or so you give them a brain break and this brain break can take the form as an as i said riddles and what this does is that it, it re-energizes the brain and it sets the brain up to become more focused and you know this is what the research has found but then another thing is that sometimes kids have memory issues and this is a big problem for kids who have dyslexia or reading problems if you have a memory problem you're not able to remember the words and so there are different memory techniques that you can use the main thing is repetition so you find that some kids just need um, the information to, to be repeated um, on a number of basis and again using multi-sensory information so using um, the senses the, the sense of sight touch um, feeling hearing um, all these different things really set the children up and your students up for you know being ready um, to learn essentially definitely true all right so another challenge that i find is sometimes the balance how do parents balance learn balance in terms of knowing when to break down words or knowing when to introduce whole words how do they because it's a lot of things that they have to take into consideration to teach their children how to read how do they attain that balance 
So in terms of balance, starting off with the simple words is always the recommended strategy because I've, I've actually come across um, kids who are quite excited to learn and peer, unfortunately parents um, introduce words that you know maybe have too many syllables, for example. So you start with those, so for example, in the presentation, I had the, the cat and the bat. You start with those, those um, small, smaller words um, that have, and this is why in Jamaica, I don't think this is used in schools anymore. So back in my time, we had the little books called I Am, I Am Roy. Oh, and yeah. so those, those sort of books. And so I'm sure they are more advanced now and more engaging. But this is why you start, um, you start simple to begin with. Because if you start with words that are, you know, contain too many syllables, it can actually overwhelm the memory limitations, sorry, the memory resources of children. And so um, what we find is that if memory in some way it, it is limited and if we overwhelm it and um, really, and it also has to do with uh, attention as well. If you overwork the attention resources, that resource is very limited. The child becomes tired yeah. and they will not want to engage with the material anymore. Mm -hmm. All right, I think we might need to do another workshop on this. I'm getting a lot of good questions. Another question says from Karen, have you considered a literacy toolkit for parents of deaf or hard of hearing children? That would be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. that, so in, so I, this is something that I haven't done up any presentation on that, but this is something that I thought about working alongside Michelle as well, because we also have to think about not only youth for parents who, you know, children who are, you know, typically developing. Um, we have to think about um, different populations. And so it's all about accessibility. So this is something that um, I'm currently working on. And but I'm in the very early stages of how to really execute something of that magnitude. But I am, I'm happy to keep in touch with you to, to demonstrate how that research or that line of work um, progresses. Yes, Karen. So send her an email afterwards. Because this is definitely something that needs to be done because I've worked with parents who have deaf children, but they themselves aren't deaf and they don't know how to communicate with them because they don't know sign language. So that's definitely something that needs addressing. Another person is asking that, you know, there are lots of adults who can't read and they can function though in society. So how can you teach a child, a person who did not learn to read as a child? So pretty much the research is quite clear on this in terms of using that, um, that phonics-based approach. It's mm -hmm. been tried, it's been tested, and we find that, you know, in the space or in the research where um, adults who are, they're, you know, they're functional and they've used these strategies. So this is what, this is the, the issue with memorizing words. Mm -hmm. to memorize the words, but when they, you know, when they encounter a new word or maybe a bigger word, this is where they have the problem. And if you, you know, provide a systematic way because of, of pronouncing the word because as I mentioned before a lot of times we think that reading is natural it's not a natural process we think that because we see the the words on the page we can map the sounds it's not natural and this is the, where the disconnect lies so that phonics based sounding sounding you know sounding it out approach that that approach um, is 
tested and tried um, and proven to be effective in, in different situations. That's true. Definitely. Remember, you mentioned in the research that what was his name? Color? Color? Did it? Yes, yes. So that was a very, very important point on how important bonus is and how, what's the word? How empowering it is when you're able to sound out the words and move on to sounding other words on your own because you know the basic phonic structure. And Victor, he's not asking a question, but he's very impressed with what he's hearing and seeing in terms of the literacy and the use of digitization and technology to reach students who are still learners. So this is definitely a conversation that needs to be continued. But Nikisha has another question. She's saying she's an educator and she has students who are at different reading levels. She's trying different methods, but she's realizing now that at the end of the day, she's drained because of, you know, trying to cater to students at different learning levels. What can she do to ensure that she reaches all her students? So one of the key things, and I think teachers are in a prime position to really capitalize on um, pairing, the pairing stronger readers with the, the readers who are, um, you know, not so strong. And so you'll, you'll, you'll always find these, you know, different ranges of ability in, in the classroom. And students can actually come on board and help you, especially when you have a reading time. And we find that this usually works, this peer-to-peer -peer mentoring. And so, um, Nikisha, what you can do is to ensure that you pair, you have a system where you pair the stronger readers with those who are not so strong. And what the research has found is that this peer-to-peer -peer mentoring is actually sometimes even more powerful than a teacher mm -hmm. teaching the, the, the actual student. And what this does is that it works both ways for the, the reader who's not so strong and for the stronger reader, it really helps that stronger reader in terms of their um, you know, turn-taking abilities. Mm -hmm. It helps them you know, with your confidence, these sort of things. So you're building these, these skills into these readers who are distinct ranges or different ends of the spectrum. So that's one way that, you, that we usually um, say that in a typical classroom setting, you can ensure that you're not so drained by peering the stronger readers and the, the weaker readers. So that also you can, you can um, direct your attention to those who may not even be necessarily from or be ready for that peer-to-peer -peer learning. Mm -hmm. All right. And for those persons who want to speak to you off the air in terms of sending you an email, could you repeat your email address for us all? Yes. So it's, um, maybe if I type it in the chat. Okay. Mm -hmm. Easier. Um, so feel free to email me at any point in time. I'm always happy to answer any questions um, in this area. So I've just provided my email. Um, I'll just provide both emails as well. So single view is the education tech company and um, sometimes unfortunately emails get lost. So if I don't respond there, um, you can email me at the second email. That's the university email address. Right. It was sent to me, so I'm just going to type oh, it. <laughs> All right, no problem. All right, are there any other questions? This has definitely been a fruitful conversation. All right, so another, yes, another question from Patricia. It says, with technology taking over all ages, what do you think about persons who can't read well 
And as a result, they have to write text shorthanded. They spell it how they know it or how they think it's pronounced or they use emojis. How does that help or how does it deter learning or learning to read? Well, it's a, it, it, it's a starting, it's really the starting point of communication. And this is this, and it's interesting. And I'm glad that we're, I'm having this, this conversation because most of these you know, questions are questions that we, we have at work um, when we're table discussion and so one of the things that we're, we're wanting to implement in regards to Patricia, Patricia's question is especially with the use of emojis and shorthands there's a particular technology or, or technique it's called natural language processing and what natural language processing does it it picks up these emojis um, it analyzes the text to make sure the teacher on the and the teacher on the the other end of the line really understands what the child is trying to communicate or what the student is trying to communicate. In terms of deterring, um, it, um, I, I haven't come across any, there may be research out there, but I haven't come across any sort of research that says that it's a disadvantage to learning how to read. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll research that. If you email me, I can research it, but um, I don't have a specific answer for that. I wouldn't be speak, speaking from a place of knowledge. So you can, I can do some research in that area, but to my knowledge and the research that I've been exposed to in that area, Patricia, I haven't seen any sort of disadvantage to using emojis, so to speak. All right. And KH, I'm not sure what it stands for, but she is saying that she appreciates the fact that you mentioned parents whose first language may not be English but they're concerned about their children learning the English language. These parents can speak in their native language, but do so in complete sentences so that the child can understand that the native language has structure. In the case of Jamaica, and we talk Patwa, parents and children need to understand that Patwa has a structure and that they can use it to their advantage in order to learn English efficiently and effectively and to distinguish between the two languages. So I guess that's, a call for Patwa to be standardized. I know that there has been some conversation in some circles about that. Oh. Yeah, I agree because that was one of the things that I was thinking about during the presentation that we often say that, you know, when a child speaks Patwa, it, it, it's detrimental, but it's only detrimental if it's, if it's not taught within that structure. And the research is quite clear to say, if English is not your, your first language, still speaking in your home language but maintaining that structure it's that that structure is what is important to make sure that children go on to become um, good readers because they understand that language has a structure okay all right and one final question as we wrap up melissa wants to know what methods would you suggest for a child who panics when he or she is to read or is fearful with regards to that question, that comes back to the, you know what I was mentioning in terms of really understanding the whole child. One of the techniques mm -hmm. that comes in handy here is the whole. It's we call it. Usually, people think meditation is bad, but a more scientific tool. It's called mindfulness, mm -hmm. and that really reduces the the level of anxiety. So that's one of the main ways um, that you can. And mindfulness is all about being in the here and now, and also really delving into what is making what in order to reduce the fear we need to know what is actually contributing to that so it may be a case where the child is not confident in reading a particular word maybe he or she is confident but maybe just not 
reading aloud. So we need to know the specific concern of the child and that's usually done through mindfulness and through knowing that the source of the anxiety then we can start to address it um, using you know relaxation techniques um, and just calming them down because more often than not that's um, and I understand especially if you if you're not a confident reader I can understand how um, challenging it could be um, and it can be quite a fearful situation. So very true. All right, thank you so much for answering our question so knowledgeably. Thanks to, to the other participants who asked the questions. I'm trusting that they were satisfactorily answered. I'm now going to turn over to our host, Ms. Santana Morris, as she was. Thank you very much again, Dr. Johnson and uh, Mrs. Goldley Bruce. Those were two excellent presentations, I am and I'm sure that all the listeners will agree with me that they learned something from these presentations. Um, next week, we will be having two additional excellent speakers who will be joining us to speak on two topics that I'm sure that you will all want to hear about. Uh, we will feature one, Mrs. Latoya West Blackwood, who is the chairman at the Book Industry Association of Jamaica. She will be speaking um, on the topic, the psychological effects of COVID-19 and the literacy development. We will also feature a second speaker, who is Mrs. Beverly Vernon, and she is the current principal at the Academy Charter School in New York. She is the former principal at Maxfield Park Primary School. She will be speaking on literacy empowerment while engaging in remote learning and trust me i can tell you that these two speakers they are very empowered you have heard dr johnson you have heard mrs bruce uh, mrs bruce and um, these speakers will come to us with their years of knowledge and experience in the field of literacy so join us next week same time uh, we will be sharing the flyers via our facebook platform and also or other social media platforms so that you can get access to the meeting link and the password to join us. This evening we had over 100 participants who you know came in and out and I'm sure that this is an indication that as a nation we are moving somewhere because we're taking things in our own hands to see how best we can promote and enhance literacy development across Jamaica, the Caribbean and the world. So thank you all for coming and see you next week, same place, same time right in your household. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye.
have no fear for atomic 